Today's podcast is brought to you by Buick. The holidays are coming up, if you haven't noticed. And like a lot of people, we're heading home, which means we will be out of the studio. But you know what that also means? Reminiscing. Seeing the house you grew up in, buying me Christmas presents, driving around town in the car you had growing up. But let's be honest, it was super unreliable. It would not have made it in New York. Luckily for you, Buick has seven new models to choose from to complement any lifestyle. The perfect car, even for you. We will get back to more on this lovely car in just a minute. The first circle is, is the content. The second circle is uh, omni-merchandising, because from the content, you develop the merchandising. Were you ever afraid that the company wouldn't scale with your name attached to it? Oh, no, no. Uh, except that when you go public, there's, a, there's something called the four Ds, death, dismemberment, dementia. Nothing good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing good. And I said, let's call it Ps. Let's call it the four Ps. Perspicacity, uh, prosperousness. I'm Danielle Weisberg. And I am Carly Zakin, and we are the co-founders of The Skip. You're listening to our podcast, Skinned from the Couch, where we talk to other female entrepreneurs about what it takes to get to the top and then what it's like along the way. We're talking bad advice, the really low days, management mistakes, everything that goes into the real stuff. No BS. We started the skin from a couch, so what better place to talk it out than where it all began? We are on a couch right now. Join us in welcoming Martha Stewart to the couch. Martha has always had a knack for lifestyle. She grew up cooking, gardening, and sewing. She even planned parties for other elementary schoolers. But a little while later, after graduating from college with a degree in history, she took a different path, and she headed to Wall Street to work as a stockbroker. Eventually, she used those business skills to build an empire in the lifestyle space. There have been bumps along the way, and we'll talk about those. But these days, Martha is the chief creative officer of Sequential Brands Group, where she oversees the company's products, publications, and TV shows, including the Martha Stewart Living magazine, and her cooking show with Snoop Dogg, Martha and Snoop's Potluck Dinner Party, which we've got a lot of questions about. In the meantime, Martha, welcome to the couch. Hi. I want to start going back to the side hustles. It's something that we are very passionate about, our team is very passionate about, our audience is, and you didn't start off being uh, kind of the queen of lifestyles, if you will. Um, you started off as a stockbroker, but even before that, you modeled. And yes. Let's talk about the side hustle. Oh. Well, I wouldn't have called that a hustle, although in, the, in this day and age, maybe it's uh, it could be called that. But um, I learned uh, early on. I was I think I was 13 when I first made my my way to New York City at the uh, request of a friend who lived across the street. She was a ballerina and a model. And she said, you know, you're you're pretty. You could be a model if you'd like. So she took me to her agency and. Uh, they signed me right away, and I became um, a live model for fashion shows as well as a photography model for um, advertisements and editorial, as well as a um, live um, model for commercials. I enjoyed the commercials the best because uh, you did you spent a day doing Lifebuoy soap or Tarryton cigarettes or Clairol, and then you got residuals, and I liked the residuals. <laughs> and uh, you could say, ho stay home and do your homework and, and rake in a few thousand dollars uh, for every time the, the thing was shown on television. 
So what was the the driver? Was it purely financial motivation or to be a model? Yeah. Oh sure, it was fifty dollars an hour. That was a lot of money when you were making a dollar babysitting or maybe seventy five cents an hour. Uh, you were making fifty dollars an hour. Top models made sixty. I would I was categorized as sort of like the second tier. But when once you get on a cover of a magazine or on the back cover of a magazine, then you go up to sixty dollars an hour. <laughs> now, of course, it's thousands of dollars an hour for for the models, the top models. But that was a lot of money, and the commercials really did pay for my uh, to all my expenses at college. And at the same time, my dad lost his job. He was a pharmaceutical salesman, and he lost his job, and I supported the entire family for more than a year. Uh, and I felt very good that television commercials could do such a thing. And it was um, just something that I could do for the family. We, you know, there were six kids. My older brother was already in college. Uh, he was doing fine on his own with scholarships, but the rest of the family needed to have money, so it was a good help. How did that experience shape, I'm assuming, everything else that followed? The modeling? Or just being so young and, and having a job that could help support your family? Oh, it was great, yeah. uh, but I didn't, I didn't think about it as, as, oh gosh, I have to give all my money to my family. It was just the way I was brought up. But what modeling did was, the, that was the good thing. The modeling gave me a sense of self-confidence in front of the camera, which I've used and still using it every single day. And uh, you can't be a good model without having that ease of, of movement and, you know, and the ease of a smile uh, and to be able to be directed by someone to do something. So I, I really learned a lot that, and it was uh, invaluable. No matter how much money I made, it was invaluable experience. So um, I, I'm so appreciative of that experience. And I joined Ford Models first with Eileen Ford, the legendary Eileen Ford. And then a, a young uh, firm s uh, started up called Stewart Models, no relation, but I joined them afterward and got more attention. Um, and uh, it, was, it was just extraordinary, really good. How do you go from that to Wall Street? Uh, well, I got married at 19, so as I, I, and I didn't have to work once I got married. I married a, a boy who was at Yale Law School, and he was come, came from a wealthy Park Avenue family, and he, I didn't have to work, but I, I'm a worker. I'm just, I'm just built that way. So I continued to model. Uh, I was at Barnard College at the time. I commuted from Yale, uh, actually Guilford, on the other side of New Haven, to New York every day to class and went back home at night. It was a stupid commute. Why he didn't move to Greenwich <laughs> <laughs> so that we could sort of meet at the, in the evening. Uh, but again, I, it, didn't, it didn't occur to me to even think that way. I just, went, I just did it. And I did all my homework on the train. And in those days, the New Haven Railroad was very uncomfortable. They, the seats were upright. And I think that's where I've learned how to sit only in <laughs> upright. They were like rattan seats. Um, if you go if you go to the Museum of Transportation in Brooklyn, you can see the old the old train cards there, and it was just like that. But um, so so I so I was married at the end of my sophomore year, and when I got out of college, and I, I modeled pretty much all the way through uh, that that time, and then uh, when I got pregnant, I stopped modeling after after the fifth month of pregnancy, and started working on Wall Street. And that's, that was the big change. I loved my job on Wall Street. Why Wall Street? Well, my father-in-law was a stockbroker, and I had been investing our savings at, in Wall Street with him. 
and I learned about companies and I learned about business and it was very intriguing. So uh, when I was ready to look for a, a real full-time job after uh, upon graduation from college, I decided that that would be kind of an interesting career path. Oh, and again, a career path. I, I didn't really, you didn't really think that way in those days. This is in the late 60s. You, don't, you weren't thinking about, I mean, you, you wanted a job, basically, if you were a woman, and you wanted a good job. And if you were smart, uh, you could get pretty much any job you wanted, but um, not all jobs were open to women, and Wall Street was like a barren land for women. There was one woman, uh, Muriel Siebert, who owned a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. She was famous. And my office, where the office I finally chose to join, there were no other women in the office. Real tough guys sitting with their, smoking their cigars. I had fans on my desk facing outward, <laughs> blowing the cigar smoke away from me. And there was <laughs> smoking everywhere. Everybody was smoking. And they would sit with their feet up on the desk. And every day you started at zero. So the challenge was great. And I just learned a lot about business as a broker. And it was a very interesting job with a very interesting group of characters. Uh, it was called originally uh, Pearlberg Moness. It changed to Moness Williams and Seidel. Then it was Moness Williams, Seidel, and Friend. Now it's Moness Crispy. And I'm still in touch with all the guys. <laughs> they were fun. And they were smart. And they knew about business. And they were successful. And I made a lot of money. So all of those things made a big difference. How did you get them to take you seriously? Being uh, oh, they took me seriously right away. First of all, I was a Barnard graduate. You have to be really smart to graduate from Barnard, even in those days. <laughs> and uh, and they uh, appreciated my knowledge. I was very knowledgeable in art, art history, architectural history, economics. I had studied with Professor LaCashman. He was one of the leading economists at the time. And so I was smart. And they listened to me, and uh, and I understood companies very quickly. We we recommended uh, some very interesting companies in those days. It sounds like you found a sense of confidence in self through modeling, and you really just kind of hit the ground running um, in, in your stockbroker career. What were you not good at? What made you insecure? What was I not good at? Um, I, no, I never thought about what I wasn't good at. I, I was always willing to try anything. But, you know, I had to go and lasso something. I had to pick up a lasso and lasso something in, an, in a commercial. <laughs> I just picked up the rope and I lassoed something. I don't I, even you know, know what lasso means. I know. So I'm, I'm like, like where are we going? Going? you know what a lasso is. Well, then now, now I do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm very good at learning very quickly. And if I have to hit a great tennis ball, I can hit a great tennis ball. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm athletic. I'm um, I'm in shape. I eat well. I keep healthy, and and I just I just do it. I'm not afraid of anything. I think that that helps. I think fearlessness really really helps. But I'm not. I don't take crazy chances. I won't jump off the Brooklyn Bridge. That's good. Please don't. Okay. <laughs> We'll get right back to our conversation, but first, let's talk about building the perfect dream car. Mine would be something sleek, but big enough to fit my dog, Medford, who's not very big, but she likes to jump around in the seats in the car. Okay, well, mine would be to have really good technology, like Wi-Fi and smartphone integration, and I would appreciate a touchscreen, and I think the most important thing is something that would help me navigate, because I'm not good at that. You know what else we both need? 
A car that helps you parallel park. Yes, that is accurate. Buick's uh, got it. Everything uh, we dreamed up. Not even kidding. Medford will be happy. We will get there on time. And we will and park. we will park. Without getting a ticket. So Buick has seven new different models. They are packed with helpful, easy tech like parking assist and Wi-Fi. They have a responsive performance to keep you and your cargo That's Medford. <laughs> safe while you're on the road. You should go get a car that complements your lifestyle and knows what you want before you do. Check out Buick's new line of vehicles. In the meantime, let's get back to the show. So how'd you go from being a stockbroker to all things decorating, gardening, sewing, glass sewing? Okay, so during that time that I was being a broker, going to work every single day on the the New Haven Railroad back to New York from Westport, Connecticut, um, I was very excited about entertaining. I had big dinner parties. I invited everybody to my house at least once a week for a big dinner party. When I needed extra silver, I'd borrow my mother's silver and, you know, drag, go out to New Jersey and pick it up and take it back. Oh, gosh, what a drag. But it was fun. And then my mother-in-law also gave me a lot of stuff that I could uh, set beautiful tables with. So I entertained all the time. And I, and I had a pension for decorating. We bought an old wreck of a house called Turkey Hill. Uh, and that started the career in, in homemaking. And, uh, and all this was while I was commuting being a stockbroker. So then when I finally decided to leave Wall Street, my daughter was, I think, almost five years old. I thought, I better, I better just leave. The commissions are being negotiated. You're making much le- you'll make le- much less money unless you really change your job. Start something new. So I left Wall Street. I stayed home. I painted my house. It was during Watergate. I remember listening to Watergate all day long, the hearings on the radio, while I painted the outside of a large colonial house. <laughs> up on big, tall ladders and uh, had the radio blasting, listening to all that horror that was going on then. Uh, so it was kind of interesting and um, and started the catering. I love to cook, so catering was a, kind of a natural. And but a, I want to pause you for a second because a lot of people are good at cooking. A lot of people love to entertain. A lot of people, they probably think they're better at it than they are. But most people don't go, you know, I'm pretty good at this. It's time for me to start a catering business, and well, especially because you, you did producers, right? Weren't you news producers, and you started something? Yeah, but we also like we had to be very financially motivated as well because we also knew that there wasn't a path for us to to really get to the next level in our careers there. So that was also part of how we why we thought we had. Well, to you look for a void. You were looking for a void to fill a void. I've always looked for a void. And that's, I still am looking for a void in everything I do. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking now, at, uh, at that time, I'm looking for uh, what can I do in Westport, Connecticut that I could make a lot of money at because I believed that even a housewife should be making money if she's spending time working. Other people are. Well, why not you? <laughs> I agree. So, so you saw a void in catering. Yes, up there. Up there in Westport. Yeah, it was a big void, and the only big fancy caterer who was just emerging at the time in New York was a company called Glorious Food and they were great and I went I thought I can just I can do just as well so I started sort of a country catering business with which had a different style than anybody else and I started to get hired by people like the Metropolitan Museum of Art the Cooper Hewitt Museum hired me a lot I did many parties there opening nights of art shows and things Sotheby's hired me for many of their openings, and it was a lot of fun. It was also extremely difficult because I was working in a kitchen in Westport, Connecticut, dragging the stuff in in a truck, 
going, breaking, setting up a restaurant every single night, breaking it down. It's one of the hardest jobs on earth, catering. It's not, uh, if you don't have a huge amount of stamina and creativity, forget it. Don't do it. Uh, and, and every caterer I talk to these days it feels the same way. It's a, a really hard business. But I was also making a whole lot of money at it. Uh, I could, even though I was, at that time the, the, the fees were nothing like they are now per person, uh, it was a successful business. And it gave me an idea. And the idea was to write a book. Because I thought, if I don't write a book, my grandchildren, if I ever have any, will never know what grandma did in her life because catering is so ephemeral. You do it, you, you, it's gone. The next, you know, the minute they eat the dinner, it's gone. So I wanted to make sure that I recorded my ideas, the beautiful recipes, and writing a cookbook, uh, it didn't seem like it was gonna be so hard. So that's what I proposed to a publisher, and it was accepted. And I created the first book, Entertaining, which became a massive bestseller. How did entertaining then become everything that you're associated with today? Well, did it took, you always it took have a little that while. vision? It took a little while. No, you don't start. I don't think anybody really starts off with where is it going to go. I don't think Bill Gates knew when he and Paul Allen started fiddling around in their basement and you know dropping out of school that they were going to build the behemoth that they built. I don't think they knew that. I don't think they knew what it would really do to the world. They might have thought, gosh, this could really change things, but it did. And, uh, and I admire them so much for sticking with it uh, through, and you know, it was a hard thing that they did. Same thing with Steve Jobs. My God, he's like, a, like an amazing, amazing creative force to do what he did. So that's what entrepreneurs are. They were entrepreneurs. I'm an entrepreneur. I discovered that during this whole process of what can I do that would actually make a difference in the, my work? Uh, how can I expand this work that I'm doing? What, how, I'm writing a book a year. Why one book a year? Why can't I do a whole lot of books a year? And the only format that I could think of was a magazine. It was 12 times a year. And that's better than one book a year and a staff and people to work with. You're not working alone in your house up in Westport, Connecticut. Uh, you're actually getting a group around you doing things. So the format for living was, was evolved and I designed a magazine and sold it finally after going to Condé Nast. Uh, Rupert Murdoch finally ended up at Time Inc. And they took the magazine, partnered with me, and we made a beautiful, beautiful magazine which at the time became successful in two and a half years. That was fast for a magazine. Mm -hmm. It kind of broke all records for becoming successful, monetarily successful. And that, again, if you're in a real business, you better be monetarily mm -hmm. successful. Otherwise, you're not in business. Who was the audience when you thought me, about it at first? Me. I was the audience. I was the housewife with child, with home, with garden, in the suburbs. I and millions of other women needed exactly what I was going to do in that magazine. That I was doing it already in the books, and the books had made me famous already. Uh, famous, you know, many, you know, few million people knew who I was because <laughs> of the pretty books. Big. <laughs> yeah. But what I think is so interesting about the audience is if you think about the way that you described, you know, being a model, then being a stockbroker, and then having no fear when it comes to starting your own catering company and selling a magazine and also having, you know, in a lot of ways, the financial freedom to try different things. That could have been targeted 
at an audience with that same similar socioeconomic level. And I think what your brand has done and, you know, probably some of the partnerships associated with it is the idea of being Martha Stewart feels like something that anyone can do in a sense. Well, I felt that. I felt that every single woman, if she's working in the diner on the midnight shift and she has six kids at home and her husband works during the day and he stays at home with the kids, I knew and I and I heard from these people. I heard from them because I they read my books and they were responding to me. And we had a newsletter and we had a, a huge number of letters coming in on a regular basis, co- correspondence, which I answered. Every, I answered all of it. Um, I'm curious, going back to, you know, you said a few minutes ago that you you discovered you were an entrepreneur. You knew you were good at it. You'd proven that. You had not proven that you could be a manager and that you could actually lead a team. Talk to us about that transition and what you're like as a manager. Oh, I had the best team when I started the magazine. That's the first team that I actually had to work with. The Doing the books was much more solitary, and I had small, a little group of maybe four or five people working with me on a book. The photographer, his assistant, uh, and maybe two people in the kitchen helping me bake the pies, if we were doing pies and tarts or whatever. It was a very small group. You, like I don't know if you ever did re- reviews or 360 reviews, but what are what do you need? Oh, to I do, do that, that at the office at home. I don't have to do that because they see me every single day and they know. I, I mean, I I am a micromanager at home at any of my homes. I write the weekly memos to do. What, wait, what <laughs> you, is a Martha Stewart weekly memo? Oh home? gosh, you wouldn't want one. <laughs> it's the to do lists because on Sunday night I sit watching whatever programs were on television on Sunday night and I type my to-do list. Oh, I really want to see And them. <laughs> oh, they are they're no, they're very specific. I mean, it's uh, this week's uh, to-do list was um was, it was they're so detailed that uh, that it's kind of crazy like uh, wrap the faux bois uh, stanchions on the driveways with plastic and burlap and tie them, you know, neatly. Put in the road stakes cuz it's going to snow soon. I mean, it goes down to that kind of stuff. But I know it better than anybody, uh, and I just want to constantly remind them. One of the worst mistakes that you can make when starting out a company is not paying people. Not paying people the right amount. That is an accurate statement. That is a bad mistake. Not paying people the right amount. Not paying people on time. Um, Just all of the things that you don't want to mess up. People's compensation, especially their first employees, is something you don't want to mess with. And there is something that would have made that a lot easier for us in the beginning. HoneyBook. It's something that can help small business owners. It's a purpose-built business management platform for creative small businesses. So it makes it super easy to streamline processes. Uh, You can make custom-branded proposals, contracts, brochures. Uh, What I love is you can actually create e-signatures and generate invoices through it. And that's why we've partnered with them to offer Skimmed from the Couch listeners 50% off the first year of HoneyBook with promo code SKIM, S-K-I-M-M. So get started at honeybug.com today and use promo code SKIM, S-K-I-M-M, for 50% off your first year. Why did you decide to name the company after yourself? Uh, Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a, first of all, I think that if you are creating a business at that time, see, again, we have to go back. The company is now almost 30 years old, Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. 
And that's a long time. But the Omnimedia part uh, was fortuitous because it encompassed everything. I mean, I didn't have to add anything. All these years, I didn't have to add anything to the name. And the Omnimedia part was, because, uh, and after all, it's, the first circle is, is the content. Second circle is uh, Omni merchandising because from the content, you develop the merchandising. Were you ever afraid that the company wouldn't scale with your name attached to it? Oh, no, no. Uh, except that when you go public, there's, a, there's something called the 4Ds, death, dismemberment, dementia. Nothing good. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing good. And I said, let's call it Ps. Let's call it the four Ps. Perspicacity, uh, prosperousness. <laughs> you know, I changed it all to Ps instead of Ds. I, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm not going to think about the Ds. And I and I really have very rarely thought about the Ds. So I assume that optimism got you through a tough time in the early two thousands. Oh yeah, well that was a that was a time and place. Uh, I had a legal problem that that no one could foresee, and no one could anticipate, and no one I didn't do anything wrong. And when I write about it, you'll understand. I'm not talking about it now because. Uh, it's still so um, so such a weird situation, but I had to go to jail for five months, and that was it. Kind of bothered me a lot. I can understand. I mean, that. I would think so. Yeah. yeah, but and that and but but I survived it very nicely because I took my own advice and said, "Don't let it get you down, and you're better than this." And the, and the people who are responsible are not good people, and forget about it. That, I don't want to be identified with that kind of. Of bad I think will. our question is how do you you know how do you maintain optimism? How believe you in yourself and believe in what you do and believe that your friends are your customers. I had a lot of customers by that time. That was a huge thing. I did not lose my customers. I did not lose my magazine. I did not lose my readers. The circulation for the magazine is, was the same as before when I when I fi finished my ordeal and yes it's wonderful mm -hmm. but because I think everybody knew it was like a bad thing a bad rap but you have to believe in yourself and you have to be extremely strong and you can't let it break you down you can't disappear yeah I mean I could have I had plenty of money I could have just burrowed in mm -hmm. Tasmania Probably, I'd probably be really happy <laughs> sheep farming in Tasmania. <laughs> and now you and Snoop Dogg have oh, yeah. a dinner party together. And now Snoop, Snoop and I have our potluck dinner party. The name was my name. I came up with the name potluck because we uh, love he, a good pun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because Snoop is a, a pothead, but uh, but he, it's a lot of fun. We're starting our third season in February. Start filming our third season. But when we started, nobody wanted to come on. You know, it's like. That's an odd combination, <laughs> and and even the you know even his friends were a little hesitant to step up and come come on this crazy show with Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg, and uh, now everybody wants to come on the show. We're, I, I think we have plenty of guests in line. Well, I think the thing that um, wait, I have to ask: oh, Have you gotten high with Snoop Dogg? Like, have do I you what? Offer, have you gotten high with? Snoop oh, I don't Dogg? smoke. I'm allergic okay. to smoke. I I hate smoke. Uh, but that's not to say that I am not uh, interested in what marijuana and and the and the uh, the uh, other products from marijuana like good edible can go <laughs> can do. Um, and so I, I recently joined the board of uh, of Canopy Corporation up in Canada, the first company first cannabis company to be listed on the New York Stock mm -hmm. Exchange. And there, it's a fantastic company. It's the new uh, pharmaceutical, mm -hmm. and and then so and that's how I look at it. 
I love that you are constantly looking for new ways to grow your brand and um, kind of keep that adventure at the forefront. What's what drives you today? Um, developing products that people still need and want. If you don't need it and you don't want it, why bother? So we are. Um, I at one time had a I had a flower delivery by mail. We just. Uh, started a new business called um, called here I am almost forgetting my new business my God Bloomsy <laughs> Box um, Bloomsy Box where you're going to be subscribed to the delivery of the most beautiful roses oh. on a monthly basis. Oh, I like Three that. I love this. Yeah, I really like this. So uh, so you should get. I mean, and we tested. Uh, you you should have seen uh, in August in Maine in my beautiful house. Uh, we tested like 72 varieties of roses. We cut them. Kevin Sharkey, who's in charge of that part of the business, he came up. We we had the dozens of roses delivered, hundreds and hundreds of roses, and we tested each one. How long did it take to open? How long did it stay fresh looking? And so we chose a series, our first initial series of roses, about 15 different varieties. They come from Ecuador. They come from Kenya. They come from all over, uh, wherever they're growing, really gorgeous um, long-stemmed roses. And then another business I've always wanted to do is shoes. So we've made the announcement that I am designing shoes for aerosol, mm -hmm. which is a comfy shoe. And it's known for, it has a, it has a, a broad audience of its own. And I've designed some really beautiful shoes for, for uh, aerosols, which will start appearing. The first collection was rain boots, but they look like equestrian boots. And then we'll go from there into uh, other shoes that I've designed. So let's take a quick break to talk about sex. Now that we've gotten your attention, that's where Lola comes in. Uh, Lola is a great company, and you might have heard of them for their line of organic 100% cotton tampons, pads, and liners. But now, drum roll please, they also offer sex products. Lola was founded by two women that we know really well and really admire, and uh, because they're two women, they know how to provide the products and resources that women actually want. And now Lola has gone into condoms. They have created condoms that are made of all-natural rubber latex, and they are individually medically tested for contraception and STI production. They also offer personal lube that is gynecologist recommended. It's hypoallergenic and made without irritating chemicals, which is a theme in a lot of Lola's products is they're making products without the unnecessary additives. And I think we can all appreciate that. Plus, this is a big one. They deliver it all right to your door in a discreet box. So for 40% off all subscriptions, visit mylola.com and enter promo code SKIM when you subscribe. And again, just go to mylola.com and enter promo code SKIM when you subscribe to get 40% off all subscriptions. What is your daily routine? Uh, my daily routine is, um, well, I travel a lot, so it gets interrupted. But I wake up very early. Like this morning, I woke up at 3.51. Who knows why? I don't sleep a lot. At 3.51, I read the New York Times from cover to cover on my iPad. I have one addiction, and that's my iPad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I have three of them by my bedside oh case. My and they have, now I have a long plug, so I don't really <laughs> have to go to another. But I like, a lot, I like to watch movies, and I like to I binge watch also. 
so I'm uh, so those are bad. The, uh, the, but I read the news, and then I look at other news, and then I make sure I read. I'm up to date on my email. Everything you're not supposed to do, I do at that time of day. Then I get up, and my trainer's waiting for me in my gym. What time do you go to the gym? Um, either six or six thirty, and then I come. To, then I have uh, a meeting with the ha- with the farm guys, everybody on the farm, and then I go to New York. And I and so it's about an hour drive, depending on when I leave. It could be longer, it mm-hmm. could be a little shorter, but it's about an hour in the car. And in the car, I do phone calls and I do other stuff. And then at the office, I have meeting after meeting after meeting. And my least favorite part of the day is all the meetings I have to do. But you have to do it. I don't go out for lunch, generally. I rarely go uptown during the day. And then at night, I stay in. And I I try to make time to see my grandchildren a couple times a week. And then I go out to dinner, a business meeting or a dinner meeting. And then I go home. What time do you go to bed? Depends. Not not too early. I, I try to watch one night show. And then I, then I watch a movie. <laughs> okay, last question. I'm bad. I'm bad. You, <laughs> last question. What's the worst piece of advice you've gotten? The worst piece of advice? Yeah. Uh, let me see. Something I didn't listen to, obviously. I, I only want good advice. I think being an optimist, you don't hear a lot of the bad. You, you try to hear the good. You try to get the good. And uh, you try to make sure that you're trying to live up to that good. We couldn't agree more. Thank you for everything. And we're just so honored to to sit down and talk to you. Great. Thank Thank you you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.